I'm afraid to call myself a Christian. I know, I know that sounds bad, that, coming from a pastor, coming from somebody who claims to have a relationship with Jesus. But have you noticed what that word means in our culture? Something I've noticed uh, myself as I interact with those who don't do the church thing is how hard it is to have a shared understanding uh, of what it means to even be a Christian. Uh, I, wonder, I wonder, have you run into this? The word has become glued to stereotypes. It's a word that's, that you know, puts expectations into people's minds about how we think and how we live. Uh, it's a word that, that is even a trigger for some, bringing to the surface thoughts of pain and of shame. And perhaps, especially for the youngest among us, the, the label has become kind of a meme. And because my assumption is that I probably use the word differently than how people would understand that word, I feel this pressure to, to apologize and to clarify and to explain as soon as I hear that word or use that word, and that just feels like a lot of work. I'm hesitant to call myself a Christian, sometimes afraid to call myself a Christian because of all of that added effort. And where I find myself more so starting is with the person of Jesus and moving to a shared understanding of who he is first, because so much will not and does not make sense unless we see him rightly. And so here's the, the claim today that I want to explore and expand on if we're going to understand what it means to be a Christian. To rightly know, follow, and love Jesus, we need to know him, follow him, and love him as king. Can you just... Let, let that word and all of its weight just, just, just drop for a moment. King, king. We, we, we must remind ourselves and help others to understand that to be a Christian is to have at the, at the core of our gospel story, the, the core of our good news announcement, the claim that Jesus is king. To be a Christian then is to bring our whole lives under the rule and the reign of King Jesus. So although I, I live in the communications world and I believe in the power of language to influence us, I'm, I'm not primarily or only interested in, in just shaping our vocabulary by adding the, the, the word king to the title of, of Jesus. Uh, although that is a big part of what I think will actually help us. No, this isn't just a word, this is a reality. And our teaching text today is a scene from history that points us to a truth about the way things really are right now. So we're going to spend our time in John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19, moving through it slowly, drawing out some of what it means for us to embrace Jesus as king. So I want to read through it slowly, and then we're going to take this in, in three different sections. So starting John 12, verse 12, this is what it says. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. 
So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So you might have realized that in the church calendar, we are approaching Easter at the time of this recording. And, and today, uh, if you're watching this on Sunday, is a special Sunday before Easter called Palm Sunday. That's in reference to the scene we have just read. And if you've been in church enough, you, you know that this is the story we're supposed to read today. This is, this, is, this is the passage the pastor is supposed to preach on today. But to me, there's something vital for us to see, not just for this week, but as part of our framework for understanding what it means to live as a Christian all year. This scene from history points us to a truth about the way things really are right now, but also true in everything, everywhere, all at once. So look, I'm going to break this scene into three sections, verses 12 to 13, then 14 to 15, and then the remainder 16 to 19. So let's start with section one. I'm going to read these verses again and, and make a few observations. So verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So what we need to keep in mind is that if this is a movie, let's say, if it's like a movie, uh, we've already gone through the first few acts and we're heading towards a very pivotal moment in the story. Where are we? Well, we're in the Middle East, in Israel, thousands of years ago, the city of Jerusalem at the time of a celebration called Passover. That's what this feast is talking about. It's a, it's a, it, was a, it was a time to celebrate God's saving work in history, in, in history past. So who's this crowd? Well, they are Jews, and Jewish people at this time believed that the universe, all of existence, was created and governed by one God. They knew what we also know now, that the world is full of, of brokenness and wrongdoing, uh, emptiness and destruction, and especially troubling for them then was the oppression they lived in as part of the Roman Empire. But as bad as the present was for them, they believed that the future held the fulfillment of God sending a liberator, a Messiah, to set things right and to restore them and their nation as God's chosen people. All their expectations, all their hopes rested on things that they believe God had spoken to them all throughout what we have as the Old Testament. And you, and you, can, you can trace this, this theme of, of looking for a rescuer and the, the fulfillment of God's promises all throughout. Places like Genesis 49, all the way back to the first book of the Bible, where there was this promise that a ruler would come from the Israelite tribe of Judah. Places like 2 Samuel 7, where we had this promise of a king who was going to come and whose reign would last forever. Places like Isaiah chapter 9, where, where there was this prophecy about a child being born and, and whose peace and whose reign would never end in the power of God. And they believed in this scene that perhaps that time had arrived. A man was traveling around the, the surrounding regions in the recent years doing miraculous things. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. And in John's account of this moment in history, a few things from, from before that he's written lead into the scene that we're in today. Let me just highlight one for us. Six chapters earlier, John chapter 6, Jesus miraculously multiplies a small supply of food and feeds 5,000 people. And this is what happens in response to that. John 6, 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and, make him, uh, come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So do you see the longing these people have for a king? Do you see the hunger they have more, more than just for food, but for freedom from oppression and for God's liberator to come and set up his victorious rule? Now we speed up to our scene 
in, in John chapter 12. And what has just happened before this is that Jesus has been in a nearby town and raised a dead man to life. We, we, we read about that already. And this was an incredible display of his power. And this story started to spread. So a few things are happening all at once as, as we get into this scene that we, we need to see. First, the religious leaders, the Jews, they've made plans to put Jesus and, and also Lazarus, the man who came back from the dead, they've, they've made plans to kill him, to kill them issued orders for his arrest. And so this is, this is the outstanding dynamic that's going on. Another thing that's happening is that Jesus himself has made plans to be killed, to be buried. And just before what we've read in John 12, he's actually pointing out that a generous gesture that was done to him was anointing him for this moment, anointing him for the plan that he had ahead. So it's all this and more from the larger story of the Bible, but also the more detailed story from John that are brought into this triumphal entry Palm Sunday moment in this city. So let's keep going. Verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, meaning save. It's, a, it's this praise declaration. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So look, aside from being kind of the, the verse of the day for Palm Sunday, there are several things that are helpful to capture the full weight of what's going on here. First, look at, look at what they're holding, these, these palm branches. For the Jews, palm branches have become a general symbol of victory and of nationalism. So decades before this moment, they were, these, these palm branches were used when the Israelites celebrated the victory of a man named Simon Maccabeus, which marked political independence for Israel. Palm branches were also used, contributing to the symbol at the rededication of the temple. So decades before, this, this is all what's happening. So we have to see the symbol that they are using here and what, and what it means for them. But then add this symbol also to the term used for going out to meet or meeting him outside the city. This, this term was used back then in connection with welcoming a, a dignitary or a victorious general or a king. And this all adds up to a royal image of welcome. But more than that, add the symbol, add the term, add all of this to the psalm that they are singing. A song from, from Psalm 118, something normally sung at Passover and other festivals as a song of thanksgiving for God's intervention to save and to bring triumph over enemies. And here they add a line to it talking about a king. So add all of this up and it's not hard to feel, feel the tone. Try to capture this. Jewish nationalism is the soundtrack of this scene as we have this crowd running out to greet their political Messiah, who they hope is their political Messiah, one who will provide royal liberation for them as a nation. So before we move to this next section, though, here, here's a question I am asking myself and maybe one that we should all be asking. Is the Jesus that we want, the Jesus that actually exists, if you're familiar with uh, the Matrix movies, uh, you know that the storylines have a lot to do with what it means to be human and, and, and the nature of what is real and what is not real. And in the recent installment, the, the villainous machines admit that the easiest way to manipulate uh, humanity or to manipulate reality is to manipulate two things, humanity's fears and humanity's desires. So the idea is, is that if our feelings can be manipulated, then we can more easily ignore or be distracted from the facts around us. And I wonder if so much of what I allow to shape my view about what's real about Jesus is determined not by what he said, not by what he's done, but by what I'm afraid of, by what I desire. 
So maybe maybe you can relate to this. Like this crowd, they, they had fears, they had desires that led to this ache for a political revolutionary. But is the king they want the king that actually exists? Is the Jesus that we want the Jesus that actually exists? See, some estimate that the crowds could have been thousands of people. And isn't it interesting that in a few days, those who raised these symbols of victory would raise fists of fury? Isn't it interesting that in a few days, those who shouted blessing, some of them would shout for him to be tortured and executed naked on a piece of wood outside the city? Just look at the contrast here with these two verses. John 12, you know, they're shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But then seven chapters later, Pilate comes, this, this governor of the time from Rome, Behold your king! And they cry out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Like, what? The Jews' vision for society and Jesus' presence, that could together have made the changes that they dearly desired. But his failure to do so and satisfy these visions lead from worship to the cry for crucifixion just days later. Do we assume that Jesus is only about serving our cause? How confident are you that he stands with you in the things that you're passionate about? Or will we, like, 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 will we let him? Will we let him define what is good and what is not? Will we let him define what the church is about, what the kingdom is about, but also what it's not about? Because I, I know for myself that as, as soon as Jesus' ideas don't match with what I think should happen uh, uh, and, and happen in my time frame, I just feel that the tension to define these things and, and, and work towards them for myself. So, so on my way to re re record this, I was trying to think of an example of what, what this is like for me. And the one that, that came to the top fastest and first was, was this thought of, of how in my life I often want Jesus to deliver correction and outright justice or even full-on revenge to those who I believe have wronged me or wronged others that I care about. So this is, this is the desire that I have. But then, is that, is that Jesus' desire? What happens when I, when I, when I overlap that and, and, and realize that Jesus' idea is not for me to sit in bitterness, but to extend forgiveness? So, so actually think about it. It's like, step out of this church time you're in right now and think about the rest of your week. What happens to, to your anger? What happens to your sarcasm? What happens to your ideas about politics? What happens you know, to your ideas about sexual expression? Your ideas about gender identity? Your ideas about the poor? Your ideas about the environment? Your ideas about racism? Your ideas about forgiving others? What happens when you go back and see what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done and map that onto your decisions and onto your thinking in these areas? The song that they sing, interestingly enough, is correct. Jesus doesn't stop them from singing it. He actually is the king. He actually is the one coming in the name of the Lord, fully representing, fully revealing God. And this is exactly what gives him alone the authority to define what is right and what is real. So to be a Christian then is to bring our whole lives under the rule and the reign of King Jesus. And this will mean surrendering our ideas of what is best to his idea of what is best. But let's keep going. Verse 14 and 15, Jesus finds a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, a term for Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 
So again, keep in mind, the nation of Israel, the people of God, they're waiting for a Messiah, God's chosen Savior, to come. And a key promise about how God was going to do this was in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. That's the one that's being quoted here. So let's, let's read a bit more from Zechariah to give us a fuller picture. Zechariah chapter 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak. What is he going to speak? He shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah's prophecy saw the king as the prince of peace, one who would have total rule over everything. So what, what type of Lord are we welcoming? What type of king is Jesus? Look what he's riding on. He's riding on a young donkey. This is not what victorious kings rode in on. They rode in on a war horse. So for Jesus to come in on a donkey would have had a very different meaning. When kings did this, they were coming in peace. So Jesus, by this action, he comes as a king of love. He comes as a king of peace. And not as the conquering military hero that the crowds expected and the crowds awaited. His victory would be through humble sacrifice. So, so I wonder, is this helpful for you to hear this? It's helpful for me because every year it seems like I'm getting more and more jaded by leadership. An authority. And, and many people I care about are completely disillusioned by, by any form of authority, be it political or evangelical. Like, do, do, a, do a quick Google search. Be it in government or in church, we struggle because we're let down. And sometimes this struggle is justified. Sometimes power has been abused. Injustice has been perpetuated. War has been engaged. Scandal has become not just... Shocking, it's become expected. So is there somebody that I can surrender my trust and my obedience to? Is there somebody worthy of, of my allegiance, somebody worthy of my attention, somebody worthy of my worship? Well, the claim here is that King Jesus is. Listen to this helpful quote that I found. Jesus' kingship is revealed not in political power, but in his reign of truth, and manifestation of the Father to humanity. For the fourth gospel, the one we're in, John, Jesus is indeed the Spirit-anointed dispenser of the Holy Spirit, the eschatological, meaning end times or future builder of the temple, the shepherd king who unites the scattered people of God, the true judge, and the glorious and enthroned king. But each one of these messianic tasks is accomplished by the way of the cross. Like in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, Jesus gives us a picture of who he is as king. And in one powerful scene in Revelation 5, the king imagery of Jesus is shockingly combined with the imagery of sacrifice depicted in a slain lamb. What kind of king is Jesus? In what way does he use his power? In what way does he establish his rule? In what way does he establish his reign? Suffering. Sacrifice. I love how one author describes Jesus' work the Lamb has, been, has conquered the forces of rebellion against God 
through first being conquered by those forces himself. To be a Christian is to bring our whole lives under the rule and reign of King Jesus, and this means surrendering our lives to the one who sacrificed his. So look, if the idea of, of submitting to Jesus and obeying Jesus is hard for you, can I get you to consider this question? What would it take for me to get to the point of surrender? What would it take for me to get to the point of surrender? I, I won't camp out long here, but, but the Bible, all throughout, people have prayed for help with this. Like, think of Psalm 86. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Think of how Jesus teaches us to pray even, hallowed be your name. Like, God, cause things to happen in my life to bring me into an experience of who you actually are. There is help available. And I realize there are things about God's word and our experience in this, in this world that are difficult to understand. Like, if Jesus is king now, why have I experienced such difficulty? Why is the world in such chaos? Why, why have I experienced disappointment? Which leads us briefly, I think, to the help from this final section of verses. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. There's a lot to comment on here, but, but here's what I was thinking the other day. There must have been, with, with the size of the crowd and with all the dynamics in that city and in the time, there must have been all sorts of brokenness, all sorts of difficulty, all sorts of disappointment represented in that crowd. Miracles that were left waiting. Prayers that were left unanswered. But that doesn't mean that something bigger and something better didn't occur. And I have to believe that, that even some of these Pharisees came to benefit from something they initially hated. Jesus had, had previously said that he was going to draw all people to, back to God when he was lifted up on the cross. And that's what ends up happening. And I want to point this out from, from the later chapter. Notice what happens on the cross. Pilate, who orders this execution, posts a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written, look at this, in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, so that many people could read it. Look, this, this title, King, is written in, in so that it's, it's accessible to all these different types of people groups. What Jesus is doing on the cross to, to set the world to rights, to, to be enthroned and establish his kingdom, it's for all people, and this is what was going to happen. And I actually like that were told that John's disciples didn't understand it all. They needed more of the story, and there eventually was more to the story. But you know what? Although we're in a different part of the story than they were in, we actually need the same thing. There, there's, a, there's a lot that doesn't make sense about Jesus' kingship unless we take in the whole story, start to finish, and including, especially including the parts that are yet to come for us. What we have to believe is that there's a bigger picture. I myself have to understand that there is more going on at every given moment than what I'm experiencing with my five senses. Imagine if they then, especially after this moment where, where things get tough, imagine if they had asked, okay, I'm seeing all what's going on, but, but what's really true right now? And maybe this is what we need to do, to look at life and ask, 
what is really true right now? What is really true right now? Now, now for me, I'd have a lot of different answers. Well, the truth is some things are good and some things are not. Some things are beautiful and some things are tragic. Maybe asking the question though, helps us to anticipate that the answer should always include these four words. And Jesus is king. Yeah, what's, what's true right now is great. I'm thriving. And Jesus is king. Yeah, what, what's true right now is chaotic. And Jesus is king. Yeah, what's true right now is exhausting. And Jesus is king. Yeah, what's, what's true right now is difficult. What's true right now is confusing. What's true right now is depressing. What's true right now is hard. And Jesus is king. Like, what would happen if we brought everything in life back to this central truth? Jesus is king. Like, cast the realities of Palm Sunday, cast the realities of this scene into your current reality. Our rhythm that leads to life here is to use the gospel story to shape our story, to make our governing principle for everything, the governing person of everything. At the very center of reality, Jesus is on a throne. His rule and his reign has begun. And it is going to be completed. So surrender to the king. Experience and embody this reality now. The kingdom of God is about the rule of heaven coming here to earth. Jesus, the king, is already at work to make things happen on earth as in heaven. So really briefly, let, let me share how this helped me most and, and, and see if this overlaps with your life. This helps me in the areas where I feel worried about things outside of my control. And I think it helps me where I feel like the church is becoming irrelevant, or when I feel like the church is becoming irrelevant. See, looking at John 12, it looks like in the moments after this that the cultural forces of the day win. The religious majority, they won. The authority of the empire, they won. The Jesus movement was just this fringe thing uh, from the margins of influence that got stamped out like the other movements before it. But then, like now, Things are not only as they seem. One of my favorite movies is called The Prestige, and there's this guiding question that's posed to, to the viewer. Are you watching closely? It's meant to get us to realize there's actually something else to look for that may not be obvious to us. So in life, are you watching closely? And what, are you, what, are, what are we paying attention to? The news, the TikTok trends, the popular storylines from Hollywood that are normalizing things that are out of sync with the kingdom of God, the, the economic trajectory, the, the war, your bank account, your, your medical situation, the choices of people in your life. Are you watching closely? What are you paying attention to? Look, nothing about anything is challenging Jesus' control. Nothing about anything is challenging Jesus' relevance. His kingdom will come and his will will be done completely on earth as in heaven. Oh, yeah, things, things are not as they appear. Oh, look, on this Palm Sunday, it appeared uh, afterwards, like the Jewish leaders, they had the popular vote. It appeared like the Roman governor had the, had the commanding rule. Oh, it appeared like a scattered group of nobodies were on the wrong side of history. But what seemed to be the controlling what seemed to be the relevant forces were actually the opposite. Jesus wasn't someone powerless from the margins to extinguish. He was the king at the very center of reality. 
Everything else, everything else is on the fringe. Everything else is on the margin, the wrong side of history. We don't need to work to make Jesus cool. We don't need to work to make Jesus popular. We don't need to work to make Jesus in control. We don't have to feel like it is either. There will be lots of times where it will not look that way, but it will be that way. To be a Christian, then, is to bring our whole lives under the rule and the reign of King Jesus, and this means surrendering to the most relevant and unshakable reality. And what can happen as a result is that embracing this makes us agents of renewal in a broken world. A lot of us on our team here, we, we, we resonated with, with this phrase that Mark Sayers has been using, live with a peaceful presence in an anxious system and you will become a healing agent of renewal. He then expands on this using an analogy of, of what happens in a similar way when antibodies or white blood cells, get that, how they can be agents of healing uh, when, when things need repair in our bodies. So to what degree, in light of the reality of King Jesus, to what degree are you a peaceful presence? I'm asking myself, to what degree am I a peaceful presence? Because look, if you're a parent, your kids pick up on the type of presence you have in your home. If you're an employee, your, your co-workers pick up on the type of presence you have in your work environment. Be it in the living room, be it in the locker room, be it on, be it on social media, what, wherever you are, people will pick up on the type of presence that you carry. And I wonder, for myself, I wonder if it will reflect that I'm part of an alternative story than the ones that are common in this world without Jesus as king. Early on in COVID, I was on the phone with somebody I, had, I hadn't talked to in a long time, and so we're, so we're catching up. And, and as we do, you know, he, he's speed talking about for about 30 minutes about the, the, about the mess the world is in. And there was, there was a lot, like now, there was a lot to comment on. And I'm sitting there on my deck in the, this, this nice evening, and, and I'm, just, I'm just responding here and there. And, and he said something to me that really startled me that I haven't forgotten. He said, you're so calm about it all. Why is that? And what was weird about that was like, in that moment for me, I was actually fairly concerned about things. I was actually fairly exhausted by the, the pressures and the conflicts and the injustice that we were talking about. I didn't really feel all that calm. And then this phrase in the conversation emerged. It's like you're living in a different world. And that actually helped me to realize something. I, I am. We are. If Jesus is our king and we're in his kingdom. So look, we're not, we're not banking on things going, going our way every time in life. We're not banking on leaders to be perfect. We're not banking on cultural or political systems to meet all our needs. We're people who have placed ourselves under the rule and under the reign of a king that we can bank on, whose kingdom has begun, whose, whose, whose fullness, the, king, the, the fullness of the kingdom is pressing in to the, to the present from the future. And so then it's no wonder that we could repeat the words of John 12, 15 from the first Palm Sunday, fear not, behold him, the king is coming. Maybe, maybe right now something's clicked for you. My belief is that because Jesus is alive and the Holy Spirit is active in the world, he might be nudging you right where you are right now to respond to this. With all the unanswered questions you might have, with all of what's going on in your life, so, so don't miss this moment. Respond to him right now. Maybe it's to surrender to him for the first time, or maybe it's to re-surrender to him. Bring your life under his rule, under his reign. Place your trust in Jesus and begin to follow him anew today. I want, I'm going I'm to pray something that I think it is for me, but it can be for you regardless of where you're at. If you want to respond right now in this way, 
Pray with me. Jesus, I know I need things to be made right between me and God. I believe you are the king. And in response to that, I put my trust in you to rescue me and lead me. Thank you for making this possible.